If you guys have your Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Uh, if you're new here, we want to welcome you guys. We started a series in the book of Revelation a few weeks ago. And uh, now we are kind of making our way throughout this great book. Uh, we are in sort of a subsection of the book, uh, what's typically called the seven letters to the seven churches. It's a series of consecutive letters written by Jesus to seven churches that were sort of in kind of a circular type of a pulse route in the region of what then was called Asia Minor. Today we just call it Turkey. So Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to read Revelation chapter 3 beginning at verse 1 down to verse 6. It's a small little section. It's very, very short, very to the point, in a lot of ways, pretty stern. Be straight up, Jesus is not very happy with this church living in a city called Sardis. We're going to read it, I'll pray, we'll get to work, move on. It says this, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen that which remains, that which is about to die. He says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You have a few names in Sardis that have not soiled their garments, but they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would help us to live that, that we uh, would have ears to hear, that we would listen to what you have to speak to us, to the church. God, I pray right now that you would give us humble hearts, give us the ability to see things that maybe we've never seen before. And God, I pray as well that you would give us the honesty and the humility to be able to uh, take things maybe in ways that we've not been able to take them before. God, we want to be right with you. We want to be a church that is not just simply good and successful in the eyes of this world, but got a church that is good in your eyes, a church that represents you, a church that reflects you in a way that just brings glory to your name. And so we ask for your favor, we ask for your input, we ask for your wisdom to be given to us here this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to give you guys a little bit of a background in terms of first looking at Sardis. We've been doing this weekly. I want to do it again. I think it's helpful in terms of uh, getting a little bit of a context of what Jesus is writing. So the next slide, you're going to see, again, that map that most of you are probably familiar with. If you're not familiar with it, that big red arrow points to the city that we are at. And yes, this week it's actually correct, unlike past weeks. Um, so that's where Sardis is. You can see it's on the area of modern-day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor. If you look in the very, very low right-hand corner, you see a big red dot that says Jerusalem. So you get an idea as to where, hopefully, we're at. Okay, the next slide, we're going to see a little bit about Sardis. Um, Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Um, it was a very important city. It had risen to a lot of levels of dominance and recognition. Um, one of the things that you'll notice about the city that definitely plays, I think, into the actual context itself is you'll notice this big, large mountain. Some of you are like, is that Hollister Mountain? No, it's not Hollister, nor is it Bishop. It looks like it. In fact, 
lot of the pictures of Turkey remind me a lot like the Central Coast. I mean, look, doesn't that, doesn't that look like Central Coast? It's all brown, although right now it's green. Um, anyways, what you'll notice here, this is a mountain called Mount Tamales. Very large mountain. It was the main mountain. If you were in that area, you would notice it immediately. And um, uh, the word tamales actually comes from an ancient word. The etymology is we get the English word tumor from. It means something that protrudes upwards or outward. Um, so it was this very, very large protrusion of rock that's just very significant. But what's important about this that you'll notice is you'll see right down here, these are some ruins, and this probably was some sort of ancient temple, but you'll see off here in the distance, this is Mount Tamales. This is where the main part of the city was. In fact, if you live back in that day, a lot of, archaeology, a lot of archaeologists have discovered that the city wall was actually built into the mountain itself. I'm not sure exactly what side, but just hypothetically, let's say that the wall was built right here. And then this was sort of filled in. This was the area. So it was said basically back in the day that the city of Sardis was built into sort of the rock here of this mountain. And it boasted a city that was completely impregnable. Uh, It boasted itself of being able to have protection that completely guarded itself from ever being able to be conquered. Um, And so you can imagine this big, large wall that was sort of going outward from the rock, and inside of it was the city dwellers, that people that had lived there, and they felt very, very secure, very confident. In fact, the king, um, most of the kings that had lived and dominated from this particular place, in fact, particularly one, was actually deemed the richest man in the entire world. And there's a lot of uh, theory and a lot of stories, a lot of folklore that actually kind of gone around with regard to how he had become wealthy, because right at the base of this particular mountain is a very large uh, river, and this river is actually filled with lots of gold. In fact, it was believed way, way back in the day, according to a lot of the mythology of the uh, ancient area, uh, you guys familiar with King Midas, right? Guy who's got the uh, golden touch. So King Midas, good, good brother's got golden touch, uh, he was basically told that if he were to go wash, in, wash his hands in the a river that actually flows right at the base of this mountain, uh, he would become clean. He would, you know, if you know the story, King Midas, his whole golden touch thing didn't really work too well for him, especially when he starts turning all his loved ones into gold. It's like, bummer, I love that person, and another gold bar, you know, it's not good. And uh, so anyways, he washes his hand, according to the tradition, in this river, and uh, it becomes filled with gold. But now that plays in the story to some degree, because now what ends up happening is all the kings and the people that live in that region become very, very wealthy. And so they've got all this wealth, they've amassed all this fame and wealth and this power and strength, and so they're able to build these massive cities that provide major comfort and uh, uh, security for all the people that live in that particular region. And that ends up kind of becoming part of the whole scenario that's going on here. Now what's significant about this is that even though this city was sort of noted in the ancient world as being a very, very secure city, on at least two occasions historians tell us that the city's been conquered. Um, according to one of the uh, stories is that one of the soldiers was kind of overlooking the wall and his helmet fell off. And so he, uh, thinking that nobody else is watching him, he kind of lets himself down the side of the wall, gets his helmet, climbs back up. And uh, one of the soldiers, this is during the time of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, Cyrus actually is one of the guys that conquers this city. Um, he obviously wants the gold and wants the city for himself. Uh, this soldier comes and tells Cyrus what he had noticed And so Cyrus thinking, well, maybe there's an alternative route into the city, that this virtually, quote-unquote, impregnable city is not as impregnable as was formerly assumed. And so one night, while the rest of the city lay in their perceived comfort and sort of, uh, 
you know, concept of protection, one night in the middle of the night, like a thief in the night, they snuck in and they conquered. They were destroyed. And the reason for it was because they became comfortable. They had trusted in sort of their own made-up protection of their walls and the fact that they were sort of situated on the backside of this mountain. And as a result of that, they be, that became, in essence, their fall. They trusted in something that was not actually able to offer or deliver to them. And it became their fall. One of the things that you also notice with regard to the city, we're going to speed along real fast here, is that uh, Jewish, uh, there is a very, very large Jewish population in that culture. Archaeologists have discovered uh, the very largest, largest synagogue of the ancient world uh, in the city of Sardis, which is phenomenal when you think about that. And the other thing that was significant about the synagogue is that it was actually built into the side of the gymnasium. The gymnasiums back in that day were basically the universities of the ancient world. It was a place where you would go and you would not only work out and, uh, you know, uh, but you would also study. You would basically transfer, you would learn through transference of knowledge uh, about Greek culture, Hellenistic culture, wisdom. You'd learn about Socrates, Plato, from your teachers at, at the gymnasium. So a lot of scholars have kind of wondered and pondered why was the largest synagogue of the ancient world right next to the gymnasium. It, it, it seemed kind of strange, especially in light of most Jewish communities who separated themselves from a lot of culture because they deemed it um, bad or filthy or uh, unholy. So this, this was kind of, this, this presented something kind of a, a, of a quandary for a lot of people in trying to understand why. But this, another thing that sort of further baffled archaeologists was they discovered a church. So there was a very large church also in the city. This church that they discovered was actually located in an, in an ancient temple. So a temple had sort of gone out of business. Imagine that, like a temple goes out of business. And then this church builds in the side of this temple. In fact... They discovered that the only way to get into the actual church itself was to actually walk through the temple itself. So, you know, a lot of archaeologists have been, again, baffled by this, wondering, you know, what, what's the reason for this? Um, they've discovered inside of that church uh, little statues, statues that were once devoted to the ancient pagan deities of the city. Some of those statues might be in the form of like an eagle, or others would be in the form of a lion. Um, but they had faces on them, like actual human faces. But what they discovered in these churches were they sort of defaced these. They, they, they realized they can scrape the faces off the lion, scrape, scrape, scrape the faces off the eagles, and just sort of use them. And so a lot of scholars can be kind of baffled, like, why? What would be the purpose for this? Um, you know, some have thought, well, maybe what they were doing were they, they were taking these ancient pagan symbols and using them in sort of a redemptive type of a form. In other words, rather than saying... You know, um, you, you know the, the, the symbol of this lion uh, in that culture might have symbolized an ancient pagan deity. Maybe the church was saying, no, it doesn't symbolize this pagan deity. This lion symbolizes Jesus, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So in other words, they were sort of reclaiming, redeeming some of the ancient pagan symbols of that culture to utilize them in their worship services. That's possible. And in some ways, it would be awesome to think that that's what they were doing. Because to be really frank with you, that's what the church should be doing. It's okay for us to be taking symbols that have been perverted and destroyed in this culture that have been misused and abused and redeem them. I'll give you one such example of this, sex. Sex has been perverted, it's been destroyed, 
our culture constantly keeps feeding off of this through the porn industry. We looked at this when we taught through the church of Thyatira. But Christians can come along and say, no, sex is not to be bad. It should be redeemed. It should be reclaimed. It should be used to bring glory to God. And the way you do that, and the way that Christians say that that's done, is it's done by stop shacking up as boyfriend and girlfriend, stop living together, get married. Get married. Actually, stand before an altar, make your vow to one another and to God, and say, I do, and get married. And then have as much sex as you want. That's how you redeem it. That's how you make it good. That's how you make it right in the culture's, in, in God's eyes, in the culture. That's how you take something that's been twisted and perverted and destroyed and make it good. Is you take it and you bring it back to what its original purpose and intent was from God himself. So some have thought, well, maybe that's what these guys were doing. It's possible, but it's possibly not what was happening by way of what we kind of see in, this, in the letter. Here's another thing we noticed about this city, is that there's also a lot of commerce that was going on. I think this is also going to play into the letter itself. Um, Christians and Jews alike had significant roles in the commercial enterprise of the city. You're like, how do we know that? Well, what they've discovered in terms of archaeological digs is that there's these massive marketplaces, right? Massive marketplaces they discovered. Major commercial center. And they had these like little, like, little storefronts, all right? And guess what they discovered on the front of these stores? Etched into like the limestone or the different types of stone that were in the region, uh, indigenous to the region, were little crosses. Some storefronts had little menorahs carved into them. Inside the buildings, you would see these little carvings of crosses, carvings of menorahs. So you know what this tells us? This city, in this city, there was no form of persecution going on. You get that? No, no persecution. We know that because if you're persecuted, you're not going to publicly announce, what's up, I'm selling sheep's wool and I happen to be a Christian. All right, you're dead. Like, you just don't do that. That's not how it worked back then. Probably wouldn't even work that way today. So it tells us this city was actually a free city. It probably valued tolerance. But what you notice here is that not only did the Christians, were there no persecution, but it would also appear as if the Christian community thrived. Probably much like the Jewish community thrived. So here's the picture of what I think is happening in Sardis. What you have in Sardis is a church, a group, a community of followers of Jesus, a Jesus community of people that are actually doing quite well. They've got big churches. They're buying property. They're moving, shaking the culture. There's a lot of commercial enterprise going on. Christians are doing well. They're building big houses. There's a lot of affluence as well as influence as it would seem that's going on here. Is this all making sense? This seems to be what we learn from archaeology and from history about the church that was there in the city of Sardis. With that said, let's take a look at what Jesus had to say to this church line by line. First verse says this. Jesus again says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This again harkens back to chapter one, the vision of Jesus uh, in terms of Jesus holding these seven spirits of God and the seven stars. But then he goes on and says, I know your works. He says that you guys have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So here's Jesus' whole point. He's like, you guys have this reputation. People talk about you. You're well known. 
pastor signing book deals. He's on the radio station. Oprah Winfrey's calling him up, asking advice. You know, this guy's really well known. You guys have a church that seemed to has, have it all together. Things seem to be moving fast. You got a big church building. Everything seems to be wonderful. You guys have this reputation. That everything's great. But she's like, the real problem is, you guys are dead. I don't like you. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what's happening. Does that trouble you? Does it bother you to think that Jesus actually has really negative things to say to this church? You know, we live in this culture that we just want to be affirmed. We just want people to sort of pat us on the back, give us a little hug, and be like, it'll be okay. But you know what the reality is? For some of us, it won't be okay. It won't be okay. If you're living in your sin, you don't need a pat on the back. You don't need a hug. You need to stop. You need to knock it off. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the church doesn't need a hug. They need a rebuke. They're not living up to the standard that I want for them. They have this name. They have this reputation. Some of us are bothered by that. That really deeply troubles us. Because we're like, I thought Jesus cared for little lambs. Didn't he like heal their broken legs? Yeah, he probably did. But sometimes he also had to break the legs of sheep that were wandering off. And that's what he's doing here. He's like, I don't like what you're doing. Knock it off. Stop what you're doing. Because even though you guys have this reputation in the world that everything looks great, even though you guys have this reputation that people talk about you, like, that guys are awesome. Great church, big building, lots of programs, lots of things going on. You're supporting a lot of missionaries. A lot of wonderful things are happening. The reality is, you guys are about to die. And I don't really like what's happening in your church. So this leads me to believe that rather than taking these cultural icons and using them in redemptive, fact, uh, in redemptive ways to sort of give back glory to God, rather than sort of using all of these symbols of culture that have been perverted and destroyed, they perhaps were allowing the culture to infiltrate so much into their church that rather than being an influence, they ended up becoming influenced. Does that make sense? Rather than being influencers, Jesus' words would put it this way. I called you to be salt. And rather than being salt, what ends up happening is you lose your saltiness. You lose your, you lo- you lose your savor. You lose your effectiveness. You lose your ability. And I think that's probably what's taking place in this church. And Jesus is rebuking him for it. He's like, I don't like what I see that's going on there within the church. As he goes on, he's basically making the point. He says, I don't like what's happening. You guys have this name for yourself, but you really are dead. And then in verse 2, he says this, wake up. He basically gives five um, exhortations for them to uh, be awake, to be vigilant, to change. And here's the first thing he says, wake up. So the implication is this, that they're asleep. They're literally just sort of been lulled off into sleep. Perhaps it's because of the comfort that they've had. Perhaps it's because, you know, they found themselves sort of intoxicated by the praise of the culture around them. That for some reason, they just sort of lulled off into sleep. And Jesus is like, you guys got to wake up. You guys have fallen asleep. Then he says, strengthen what remains. In other words, what you have, what is left, you just need to strengthen that. You need to build that, to fortify that, to take what is there left remaining and build that up and strengthen that. Because the reality is you're about to die. Things are about to get really bad there unless you wake up and unless you strengthen what remains. And then he says, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I think the point that he's trying to make is this. Is that, was this a busy church? Was there a lot of stuff going on? Probably. But I don't imagine it. You got a lot of stuff. I mean, again, according to history, archaeological digs, 
words of Jesus, some other, uh, you know, misfortunes that we see happen within the Bible. Very possible these guys had a lot of things that were going on. But Jesus is like, look, you guys got a lot of work, but the reality is that the work that you guys are doing is not, it's not satisfactory to me. Which tells me, maybe what they're doing is it's an issue of misplaced trust. They're trusting not in Christ, who has already done the works for God that are always pleasing to God. And they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in the programs. They're trusting in the things that they're doing. And not trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Then he goes on to say, remember then what you've received and heard. Remember. I think what he's basically doing here is he's saying, go back and remember that everything that you have, it's a gift. It's a gift. I think the implication that's trying to be conveyed here from Jesus is this. You've lost sight of who really has ownership upon your life. I don't know how else to put this. But the reality is, is we as human beings, we forget the, the fact that what we have has been gifted to us by God. I'll give you an example of this. Just a few days ago, we realized, I'm not even going into the story, but we just realized I, we needed to get our daughter a cell phone. Not to just use and sit around and text people in the middle of church, like some of you guys do, but basically to be able to contact us when she needs to be picked up after school or whatever the case is. But we sat down with her and we're like, listen, this is not your phone. Straight up, this is not your phone. But daddy, can I use it in tech? No, this is not your phone. This is our phone. We're giving it to you and sometimes Brooke will use the phone, sometimes you will use the phone. We have complete ownership over the phone. It's ours. So you gotta make sure you understand that. And so when we give it to you, she doesn't have these ownership rights on it. It's like, it's mine. I, I earned it. It's, you know, but the reality is, we as human beings, we live that way a lot, don't we? Some of you guys as students, you're going to be graduating. Some of you as businessmen, businesswomen, you're going to be getting promotions this year, raises this year. Some of you as parents, or as maybe women, you're going to have a baby this year. Things are going to be changing for you over this next year. New things are going to be coming into your life. You might buy a house. You might get a new car. And the danger for all of us is to begin to think it's mine. Those are my kids. This is my house. This is my job. This is my degree. This is my whatever. Fill in the blank. And that's a danger. Because what it does is it basically can very quickly, easily move on into this realm of, I have it. It's mine because I earned it. I worked hard. I waited six years to have a baby. We tried it many, many times. It didn't come, and I finally have one. I worked hard. I've been eating good, healthy meals. That's why I had a baby. And, you know, we go down this list of why we deserve the things that we get. And what ends up happening is they become these little idols of ourselves, of ours. We worship them. We bow down to them. Anytime it calls, we bend our knee. Anytime something that pops in our mind, we bend our knee to it. It's ours. We have to take care of it. If it's broken, our whole world falls apart. Our whole world, we feel like dying. I mean, that's how serious this type of stuff ends up happening. This is how easy it is for our hearts to be prone to worship other things other than the living God. And it really goes back to this issue of remembering. Remembering what you have. You have received it. God, graciously, lovingly, kindly, mercifully gifted you children, gifted you with a house, gifted you with a car, gifted you with a paycheck. Is this making sense? 
And when we forget that, when we forget that, we become self-absorbed. And we lose sight of God. And we do not live in God's economy, which is stewardship. We're not good stewards of it. We don't live as stewards of it. When we view our lives, if this is my life, I do what I want, when I want, you won't be a steward. When people ask you, hey, can you help me out? I'm moving tomorrow. You're like, why? You know what I'm saying? Like some guy asks for money. He's like, 20 bucks? Need some help? No. You know, somebody, you know, is it borrow your car? No. This is my car. I worked hard for it. I won't give it to anybody. We live with this mentality that it's all mine, therefore I have to protect it and guard it. We can't be free. At the end of the day, we become slaves to stuff rather than slaves to God who frees us to be givers. And the whole point that I think Jesus is making is that what ends up happening is I want you to remember what you've received and what you've heard. To remember that everything that I've given to you, Sardis people, is a gift from God. You've got to go back and remember that. Don't lose sight of that. Then he goes on and says, and keep it. To keep it, to live out what you've heard. I think the point is, is to live it out, to be a steward of it, to not hoard it, to live it out as a good steward over it. And then finally, um, to repent. This means to turn, to change your way of thinking about things. To turn away from faulty thinking or perverted concepts that lead to hoarding type lifestyles or lead to lifestyles that are finding comfort in stuff and in things and rather instead in God himself. Then he goes on, he says, and if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and I, you will not know what hour that I come against you. You can imagine this. Immediately when perhaps they were sitting in the living room of someone's house, maybe in that little temple church, whatever it was, and they're like, hey, let's read the nice little letter that Grandpa Pastor John gave us, and they're sitting down reading it, and all of a sudden they're like, unless I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night. You can imagine this would have sent like these sound waves, a reverberation back to these echoes of stories past of how this great city, Sardis, was conquered. And they were conquered at a peak, at a moment when they were so confident they would never fall. And Jesus is like, you guys got to be awake. Be aware. Otherwise, I will come much in the same way. Cyrus came, and you won't be expecting it, will come. Some people wonder if this is like the second coming of Christ, or if this is a coming in judgment. It's open. But the reality is, he's going to come. <laughs> he's going to come. Whether he's going to come again, we know that for sure. Whether he's going to just come at some unexpected hour to judge, that's the point. He says, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what hour I've come against you. The last little section, verse 4, I want to read this, wrap the section up here. He says this, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who are not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are, not, for they are worthy. You know, it's interesting to me that within this church, even though there's this perhaps an, enough of a large segment of the church, maybe the majority of the church, are a group of people that have kind of been lulled off into sleep, but there maybe perhaps is this minority of people in the church that have not soiled their garments. And uh, they're trying to walk strong. They're trying to be influencers, trying to be good godly influences within that church. You know, the reality is, again, there are some churches that are just bad. They're not good. And our tendency is to want to criticize them and judge them like Jesus did, but again, mind you, we're not Lord over that church. So I would say any criticism that we make, we've got to be careful. We're not Lord of that church. 
But the reality is that maybe within some of those churches, there's some good godly people trying to be good influencers within that church. I'll give you one example. Some of you guys might know an author by the name of J.I. Packer. He's one of my favorite authors. He's written a lot of amazing books. Very godly man. He's in his 80s. He's old. He can barely move. If you look at him, he can barely keep his head up. He's just this old guy. He reminds me of like Grandpa Pastor John, who wrote the book of Revelation. Just this old saint who loves Jesus for his whole life. Uh, J.I. Packer had been part of the Church of England forever, all right? And the Church of England has gone through some massive issues over the past few years, over the ordination of homosexual ministers and so on and so forth. And J.I. Packer has held his ground. And over this past year, they just finally kicked him out of the church. They finally just said, you're out of here. We don't want you here. We don't like you. You're gone. But he has been faith, and he's taken a lot of heat. A lot of people are like, why is J.I. Packer, the saintly, godly man, still in the church? Because he is like one of those who has not soiled his garments, who's fighting hard to be a good witness of the true gospel in a church that's going down the tubes. Okay, so the reality that I want to say is this. Some people need to be in these churches working hard, fighting hard for the gospel, for the purity of the gospel. To these people, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to give you guys white garments, which signifies purity and righteousness and wholesomeness. It says, I will confess his name before my father, before his angels, who has... In the air, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think Jesus' whole point is this. Just be faithful. For some of you, you need to repent. For some of you, you just need to be faithful with what you've been doing. Some of you need to wake up. Some of you have begun, begun tired and grown weary. You need to just hold on. That's what his point that he's trying to make to this church. I want to finish with this and just basically say a few things in conclusion. Because I've been trying to ask myself, like, what is this about this church that sort of kind of led to this place of Jesus' stern rebuke. He's got really, they're just, they're just not a good church. They, they're a church with great affluence and great power, perhaps amassed great wealth, but somewhere in the midst of that, they've just lost it. And so here's a few things I think that, may, that, that might be helpful for us to consider. I think maybe this church, the issue with this church, as well as with all of us, to be really frank, is idolatry. You're like, I'm a Christian. I don't worship idols. Look, we are all prone to worship idols. One of the great reformers said, our hearts are like idol factories. Our hearts are like little factories that are constantly pumping out little idols, constantly fixing the crosshairs on little things so that we can now devote ourselves, our time, treasure, attention, energy, money to. Our hearts are always trying to do that. That's why John the great beloved apostle who wrote this great book, said at the end of 1 John, he says, listen, my beloved loved ones, my beloved technion, my beloved children, keep yourself from idols. Bye-bye. That's what he finishes. He just said, stops like that. Can you imagine that? Me just ending the service, being like, look, you guys, stop worshiping idols later. That's what John does. Because his whole point is like, we have this tendency, this propensity, this, per, this perennial propensity to worship other gods. I think one of the gods that perhaps this church was prone to worship or make idols of was this idol of misplaced comfort. They had this sort of this idol of misplaced comfort. In other words, they thought that their comfort was then and what they amassed and what they had and what they built. You know, the funny thing is for us as human beings, we kind of live like this. We have a culture. We have kind of a system, don't we, in America? The system's like this. For some of you, you're going to be graduating. You're going to be moving on to the real world, all right? That means 40 hours a week, all right, working. So funny. I talk to students sometimes, and they're like, 
gosh, I'm working 35 hours a week. It's so stinking tough. Like, yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. And, but we have this sort of like thinking that even then we get this like little system, this groove, and the groove would go something like this. Like, I work 40 hours a week. I come home. I, you know, I take a nap or I watch TV and I stay up till like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, whatever. And then I wake up and I do the same thing over and over again every week. We just, but we work with this mentality of once five o'clock hits, we're out of there. So we're looking for comfort. Even in the midst of our day, we're like, we can't wait till five o'clock hits. That way comfort comes. But we even sort of organize the rest of our lives like that, right? Where we're like, okay, I'll work for 40 years and then I'll retire, Right? Or if you're really slick, you're like, I'll work 20 years and then I'll retire. I'll make millions and then I'll retire. Good luck. Hopefully that works for you. But the point that I'm making is that we do everything we can to get to this place of comfort. Does that make sense? And that seems to be perhaps what was even going on even within the church itself. They wanted comfort. They were working towards a place of comfort. Let me tell you how this works in a church, in a personal life. What I think and what I've observed happen over people in people's lives It's been amazing to me to watch people who've come to know Christ, love Jesus, fall in love with Christ. It's like the first two, three years of their life, they're like in this honeymoon phase. They're willing to do anything for Jesus. Set up chairs, change the kid's poopy diaper. It's like whatever needs to be done, I'll do it because I love Jesus. But you know what's funny to me? Is that years go by, another like 10, 15, 20 years old in the Lord, and they're like, you know what? Mm, Setting up chairs, I paid my dues. I ain't into that anymore. You know, to me, to be honest with you, it's like, wow, what happened? What happened to, like, the servant mentality of, like, I'll do anything? You know what I think think of when I think of that? To me, it's like making a church like this big buffet line. It's like, I tried the mac and cheese when I was in college. I'm just sticking with the prime rib now, all right? That's all I'm sticking with. I won't ever go back down the ladder to do anything else. You know what it is? Again, it's sort of this upward escalation towards comfort. You know what I'm saying? It's comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want to be living in a place in our lives where our ministry fits within this perfect parameter of line within our life. And if it goes beyond or if it cuts into my private time or if it cuts into me watching television, it's like I'm not interested in it. What I'm trying to say is this. We have to consider the fact, are these not some of the symptoms that led to Sardis's misappropriated trust in comfort. Maybe they wanted to be comfortable. They just worshiped comfort. I've said this before, I say it again, and I hope to continue to say this for us as a church. I don't, I don't want for us to be a church that worships comfort. And I realize us moving into a new building, we've been mobile for 15 years. 15 years we set up stuff, we break it down. Sometimes we get weird radio stations in the sound system. It's part of the fun. You know, we're moving to a building now where we don't got to set things up. We don't have to constantly keep on, on it, always making sure things are taken care of and plugged in and all that. But the reality is there will be this tendency to want to just settle now, to want to get these systems in place whereby we can just put it on autopilot and just forget about it. And that's dangerous what I'm trying to say because what happens is our hearts then become like that. Our hearts stop being vigilant. Our hearts stop living like servants. Our hearts stop living with passion for Jesus. We just live with a passion for a system. And it's not just any system, but it's a system that is comfortable. Is any of this making sense? 
You guys following this? And I think it was the plague of Sardis. I think it was part of the problem where Sardis was at. And he's basically rebuking them for it. It's like, you guys have been working hard for a long time, but you've gone into autopilot mode, and you just want comfort. You need to stop, is what Jesus is trying to say. This is the point, this is a verse there on the screen. This is when David fell into sin. You know, it says, everybody else went out to battle, and David's kicking back in Jerusalem on the top of his house, looking out, and there's Bathsheba, right? And David falls into sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace, security, and sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains. So he uses almost the exact same language that's found here. So obviously, this phraseology was sort of circulating in the early church. In other words, Jesus can come, work hard, pay attention, be vigilant, don't sleep, don't get comfortable. You guys, at the end of the day, we're sojourners here. The building we're moving into, it's just a tool. It's not our home. I don't even like to call it our home. All right? Sometimes I might slip and be like, our home. It's not our home. It's not even our church, to be really honest with you. That's you guys. It's just a tool. It's just a tool we get to use. That's all it is. The moment we find ourselves kind of situating ourselves, getting comfortable, is the moment we find ourselves in the same place, positioning ourselves in the same place, well, we're going to leverage the same rebuke from Jesus. The second thing that I think that can be a problem is we also oftentimes have these idols of misplaced strength. I'm going to show you guys a picture here. All right? Before you look at this picture or decide anything about this picture, do you agree with me that we oftentimes have this tendency, this propensity, to sometimes uh, place value in certain feats of strength that are not really full of real strength, like real strength? In other words, we look at certain things and say, that's strength. And then we fail to see other things and say, well, that's real strength. Okay, this is a picture, obviously, of Rosa Parks and Tito Ortiz, who just got beat up last week. But Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks, okay, Rosa Parks is a woman of great strength. She doesn't have big, bursting muscles, right, rock-solid abs, right? But she was a woman of great strength. So my point is this. We have this tendency to oftentimes misunderstand what real strength looks like. So the tendency is for the church to look at itself and say, well, look at what we're doing. We're really strong. You know, we got a powerful pastor, powerful preacher, powerful ministry, powerful children's thing, powerful evangelism deal, powerful whatever, lots of great things going on. We're strong. We're healthy. At the end of the day, Jesus is like, you guys aren't healthy, you're not strong, you're actually very weak, and what you're looking at and thinking is nothing more than strength, is nothing more than just a muscle that's been pumped full of steroids, and soon it's going to be nothing more than a big flab of fat. It's not real strength. It's not real strength. And a lot of times the strutting that goes around is, is more like that of a peacock, right? We just wave our feathers out, and we're like, we're really big, we're really strong, and I wonder if one time, sometimes it's like the only reason why peacocks strut themselves like that is because they don't really know how to fly good. I mean, they're nothing more than a beautifully oversized turkey, all right? But nobody ever really thinks that, especially when they wave their feathers. You're like, wow, it's beautiful, right? It's just a big turkey with green feathers, that's all. And I wonder how many times we look at ourselves and we just think, strong, guys, like, weak, 
The last thing I think is this. I'm going to wrap it up here. Is we oftentimes have these idols of misplaced affections. With the people in Sardis, their problem was themselves. They looked at themselves. They have this overinflated view of themselves. They're like, we're doing a great job. A lot of things going on. A lot of missionaries we're sending out. A lot of awesome things taking place. We're doing great. They were, very, they looked, they were the people that would look at themselves in the mirror and be like, I'm stoked. And this is a problem. I mean, this is a problem. And the reality is, that's not how God wants us to be. They fell more in love with their reputation than with God's opinion. Now, I want you to think about this, because at the end of the day, what really ought to matter for us is not what people say about us, but what God says about us. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what, you know, people are saying in the press clippings, on internet, whatever that else is going on in the world, it, what really matters at the end of the day is what does Jesus have to say about us? What does Jesus have to say about your life? What's his opinion of you? That has to be our preeminent, predominant concern in our mind. Otherwise, that, what ends up happening is we have this sort of misplaced affections. We love other things over God. And when we love other things over God for a long enough period of time, God just becomes marginalized. He just becomes a part of something we do. It's like, yeah, every once in a while we'll mention his name. Every once in a while we'll talk about him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. This is my church. I want to be center of it. I want to have the center stage. And you guys are taking the spotlight. He's like, I don't like that. So the reality is at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, what type of a church are we? What type of a group of people are we? Are we people that have become comfortable confident in ourselves, inflated with our own opinions of ourselves or what other people have said about us. I'll be really straight up honest with you guys. I said this first service. I probably won't be as passionate, but maybe some, but the reality is sometimes some of the people in this church just, be really frank, just frustrate me. Because at the end of the day, there are people that have been Christians for a long time people who claim to know Christ, people who claim to walk with Jesus, but just don't want to do anything. They're asked to do stuff like, no, don't want to do it, don't have time, not interested. And I just honestly, what troubles me about it is that we can easily keep growing numerically, and we have. We've seen our church grown tremendously over this past year. We've grown numerically, tremendously, adding an extra service, probably adding an extra service when we move into this new place. But my point is that with added groups of people can also come a weakening. And to be really frank, what ends up happening is we become people that are so situated, so fixed upon ourselves and upon our own felt needs that somewhere the gospel just gets sort of marginalized. It gets placed off to the side. We don't live on mission anymore. We've forgotten the mission. We've forgotten Jesus. We've forgotten the fact that God so loved this world that as a missionary God, he sends his son as a missionary son into this world to seek and save broken, destroyed people to put them back together again, to redeem them, and then basically says to them, as the Father, my dad sent me into this world as a missionary, so I'm sending you as missionaries into this world. And at the end of the day, the real question is, is Calvary Slow a mission church? Yes, the 
The answer is yes, we are a mission church. But at the end of the day, the real question is, are we a good missionary church or are we a lousy missionary church? And the only way that you can answer that question legitimately is to ask yourself personally, are you a good missionary Christian or a lousy missionary Christian? Are you somebody that has become like Sardis, you've just sort of capitulated to the world around you, rather than transforming culture, culture has had this swaying ability over you where now you've swooned at its influence and now you are influenced by it rather than changing it. That's what Sardis happened, what took place in Sardis. I don't want it to happen in this church. I don't want it to happen with you guys. I love this church. I love you guys. I love the people that make up this church. But to be really honest with you, some of you have been coming here for a long time and part of this church for a long time. You just don't do anything. You don't jump in. You don't respond. You don't hear. You don't participate. You come. You sit in the same seats every stinking Sunday and you never meet new people. You never go outside of yourself like God did, outside of himself, sending his son to meet new people. Am I frustrated? You're like, is the pastor frustrated? He sounds pissed. Yeah, I am. But honestly, I love you guys. I honestly, truly love you guys. And it really frustrates me because I don't want to become a Sardis church. I don't want to become a church that somehow just forgets the mission and only cares about our name, our comfort, our reputation, and how nice the service is every Sunday morning. If that's what you're looking for, Calvary Slow is not your church. It's honestly not your church. Gosh, I love you guys. I honestly do. But I want more than anything because I honestly feel that God has so much more for your life than just simply being a consumer, than just simply being somebody that just constantly takes and never gives. It's nothing like the heart of the Father. You guys, God, as I said earlier, sent his son. God was on mission. Jesus lived in this world and encountered the culture, as evil and as bad as it was. Didn't capitulate to the culture, but challenged it. And challenges his church to do the same, to live on mission like him, to be the servant of all, to love other people like Jesus loved other people. That's the church we want to be. That's where we want to live. I'm going to pray. You know, honestly, I, don't, I hope this isn't like a guilt trip. You're like, wow, he's really mad. Guilt trip. Honestly, I love you guys. I just want for us to be a church that lives on this mission, lives out this mission. So I'm going to pray. What we're going to do is we're going to worship. We're going to respond. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. Some of you guys maybe need to leave right now because it might be a little bit late. You might need to pick up your kids. Maybe I preached a little bit too long. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Um, we're going to sing. We're going to partake of communion here this morning. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you, don't partake of communion. There's a lot of things that we can do together as a big group. We can sing. We can, you know, do stuff together. But some things that we don't, can't do together, we do as a family, and that's communion. Communion represents what Jesus did for us on the cross. It means that you are in community with Christ. But if you're not part of that covenant community with Christ, because you're still living in your sin, you're still worshiping false gods, the best thing for you to do today is to confess your sin. Jesus was 
sent into this world to save people just like you, to set you free, to deliver you from not only yourself, not only from your sin, but also from your self-righteousness, to set you free, to deliver you from that so that you would be a worshiper of the living God, that you would live like the living God who is a missionary God, going outside of himself all the time to love, to serve, to pour out himself to people. That's the church we want to be. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings as an opportunity again for us just to join mission. I encourage you guys to worship. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to call upon God for mercy. But let's sing passionately to God. Let's love God. Let's ask God just to do something fresh in our hearts, in our church, in our midst, in our life. This is our last worship service here. That's kind of cool. It's an end of a chapter, but in many ways it's the beginning of a brand new one. It's a really cool opportunity. Can you imagine if today was the day when you just said, I'm going to stop screwing around, God. I'm going to stop. I'm going to be on mission with you. It's a new, new chapter that's starting. You're like, I want to I be on mission with God like Jesus was on mission for God by the power of the spirit that Jesus gave. I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll give. We'll take communion. We'll go out of here to be missionaries. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for living forth faithfully everything that you were commissioned by the Father to do. Now you've given us that same commission. Help us to live according to that. We love you. We're so thankful for the sacrifice that you did accomplish for us on the cross by washing away, cleansing us, freeing us, delivering us from sin and self-righteousness and bringing us all to the same equal place before you on the cross which is humbled and amazed at the power of God which can save great sinners like us it's a great message Lord that's changed us that we want to see change the world beginning here in slow